Amen. Amen. What a wonderful time of worship. I'm so thankful that we are getting to worship in this way and that we have come together. Open your Bibles. If you have a Bible there at the house, and I hope that you do, please grab a Bible. And let's go to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. So we're in the New Testament, Mark chapter 8. We're just going to look at four verses this morning. But what we're going to be doing is opening our Easter series. And boy, it could not come at a better time. What we need to focus our minds on right now in the midst as we watch the news and the death toll continues to rise, what we need to be remembering right now is that our God has defeated death. He has given us victory over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who has given us the victory over death through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be focusing our minds and hearts leading up to Easter. This Easter series, what the Lord has laid on my heart is it's titled Seven Words of Life. And right now, we really need to be focused in on life. And so each Sunday sermon, starting with today, we're going to be looking at seven words that Jesus is going to give us in order to help us to understand the meaning of life. It's going to help us to understand how to live life. It's going to help a person know that it is only through what Jesus has said that we can have life. And so we're really going to be focused in on these seven words. This Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8. Next Sunday, we will join Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, on the third Sunday, April the 5th, we're going to be looking at the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at those beautiful seven words. He has risen. He is not here. And so I hope that you'll join us every Sunday morning. But this morning, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, this sermon and the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples are the words that are going to help us to understand how can you have eternal life? How can you know what your eternal destiny will be? And remember, eternal life is not just for someday. But what Jesus has said is that eternal life is believing in the one that God sent. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. So we can know eternal life right now. And so join me now in Mark chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verses 27 through 30. Mark 8, and again, I hope you have your Bible. Keep it open through the sermon. Here we go, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This morning, who do you say that I am? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful Lord, that through technology we have the opportunity 
to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, our prayer is that someone today would respond to you. Lord, we pray for someone to be saved. Father, we pray that there would be changed lives. And, Lord, we know that only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be active in every home, every room, every place where someone is gathered right now watching, Lord, and listening And Father, we need you. We can't do this without you. And so, Lord, move in a powerful way. And to you belongs the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that question, and I want us to look at this question in four different ways. First of all, I want us to understand how important this question is. How important this question is. Mark has 16 chapters in this shortest of the four Gospels. Only 16 chapters. Here we are in Mark chapter 8 in verse 27. We are literally at the halfway point through this Gospel. And it is a peak moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's how important this question is. Someone once said that the Gospel of Mark is a passion narrative with a long introduction. Whenever we get to Mark chapter 11, Jesus, the passion week of Jesus will begin that last week of his life before the cross starts in Mark chapter 11. 40% of Mark's entire gospel starts at Mark chapter 11. And so we are at the halfway point, the peak moment in his ministry. I want you to look at verse 31 in this same chapter. Mark 8, verse 31. The scripture says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Jesus' ministry, this is the first time that he has said this to his disciples. This is a peak moment. But it's also a peak moment in what comes before this question that he asked them, what comes before it, and what comes after it. And so look with me at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, and I want you to notice something. In the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. He's going to show his miraculous work of being able to feed people with just a very little amount of of food. And so that is a miraculous work that Jesus does. Does look then at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man aside and in this scripture passage Jesus heals him. We have Jesus feeding the 4000 and Jesus healing a blind man and then the very next passage Jesus asked them, "Who do people say that I am?" So what we have right before this question are the works of Jesus, the miraculous works of Jesus. Now I want you to notice what happens after he asks this question. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he he truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. This is going to be the moment of transfiguration. There will be a cloud that will descend and there will be a voice come from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we have a very strong indication of the person of Jesus. And so before this question, we have the miraculous works of Jesus. After this question, we have the person of Jesus, who he is. For the first time, 
with Jesus' disciples alone, Jesus is bringing together for them the works that he has done and who he is. And this is extremely important for them and for us. Again, I'm trying to argue how important this question is. Who do you say that I am? The works of Jesus give evidence that he truly is who he says he is. He says he is the son of God. He says that he has come from above and his miraculous works are giving evidence that there is no one who has ever done anything like that. His miraculous works are showing us he truly is who he says he is. But folks, remember then in the transfiguration, This is his heavenly father saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who he is, is being given evidence as well, because who he is changes completely what he is about to do. That's why we have in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we have Jesus saying for the first time, telling his disciples, prophesying. We're going to Jerusalem. I will be rejected by the chief priests, elders, and the scribes. I will be killed, and after three days, I will rise again. Folks, please hear this. The reason that Jesus is asking this question at this moment, who do you say that I am? The reason he's asking it here is because that changes completely what he's about to do. If Jesus is simply a great teacher, if Jesus is simply a moral man, a great example to us, then his death in Jerusalem means no more than the death of any other person who would die in Jerusalem. His death means nothing more than any person who has ever died in history Each day when we turn on the news and someone has died from the coronavirus, the death of Jesus, if he is just a teacher, if he's just a moral person, his death has no more value than the death of any person who dies on this planet. But if he is who he says he is, who do you say that I am? If he truly is the son of God, if he truly is the perfect lamb of God who gives his life as a sacrifice, then his death in Jerusalem changes everything. It has infinite, eternal value for us. Again, if he's just a great teacher, then his death puts him in the same camp as Gandhi. It puts him in the same camp as Buddha, Confucius. He was just a great teacher who died. But if he is who he says he is, his death has infinite eternal value and can take away my sins. And if he is the son of God, then who you say he is has infinite eternal determination of your destiny. And so this question is extremely important. But I want you to notice one more thing about how important this question is. I want you to look then at the very next passage that follows, verse 34. And calling the crowd then with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, we've got to say it one more time. 
if he's just a great teacher, then if he says something that you like, accept it, go with it. If he says something you don't like, ignore it. If he's just a great teacher, that's our, all, all our following needs to be, is we listen to some things he says and we don't listen to other things. If he's just a moral person, well, then if, if I like his example in some things, I'll follow it. If I don't like his example, I won't follow it. But if he is God with us, if he is God who has come down to us to seek and to save that which was lost, if he is truly the one through whom all things were made by him, through him, and for him, then it changes what it means to follow him. It doesn't mean I can just accept some things he says and ignore the rest. It means he is not only my savior, but he is the Lord of my life and I will follow him with all my heart. That's how important this question is. The second thing I want us to say, I want us to understand how personal this question is. Jesus first asked his disciples, who do people say that I am. And they said, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and others say the prophets. But I want you to notice in the way Jesus spoke it, in the way Mark wrote it in the Greek, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say, but who do you? Here's how he said it. He said, you, however, pronounce about me. He put the personal possessive pronoun, you, second person plural, he put it in the place of emphasis. He asked them, who do people say that I am? You, however, what do you say? And friends, he brought it down to an extremely personal level. That second person plural, you, was just to those disciples sitting right there. And then because we have the word of God brought down to us, that word is now for you and me. It is very personal. Who do you say that he is? As I was studying this, I, I started wondering, I, I wonder why he asked them, who do people Say that I am. And, and here's what I, the Lord has laid on my heart through study. I think Jesus was trying to help his disciples to see the huge gulf, the huge expanse that was between what the world was saying about him and what he was asking them, what do you say about me? Because if you notice, the, the world was saying, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. It should not surprise us that none of them were speculating that he was the Messiah. And the reason I say that shouldn't surprise us is doesn't Isaiah 53 tell us that? Isaiah 53, that great messianic chapter of prophecy, it opens by saying, who has believed our report? It goes on to say he had no form or majesty that we should look him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And, it, and we, as it were, hid our faces from him. 
It should not surprise us that when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? No one was speculating that he was the Messiah. Even then, he was not matching up to any of their messianic expectations. But friends, he's helping those disciples to see you will be standing against popular belief in your answer to the question, who do you say that I am? He's going to be putting those disciples to the test of asking them in the days ahead, will you have the courage, will you have the conviction of heart to stand against popular opinion and to say, I believe you are the Christ. It was extremely personal. And boy, listen to how personal Peter's response was. Peter says, you are the Christ. You. Peter used a singular form of that word, that pronoun. You, singular, are the Christ. No one else. He made it extremely personal. Matthew 16 records this same account. And in the way Matthew recorded it, Matthew records Peter saying four definite articles. Listen to this. Matthew records Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. That is personal. It only applies to one person This is a personal question. Third, I want us to understand it's a simple question. Who do you say that I am? Folks, every single word in that question is a short, single-syllable word. All of us can understand it. As a matter of fact, the disciples knew exactly what he was asking. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? They knew exactly what he was asking, and they answered immediately. It's not a hard question. It's a simple question with profound implications. But it's a simple question. Even a child can understand that. My wife and I have six grandchildren. Our oldest is Kinley. She's seven. Owen is five. Walter's four. Afton's three. Addie is 20 months old. And then little baby Murphy's 10 months old. Uh, Addie is right at that age, 20 months old, where she's talking a little bit. She recognizes us when we do FaceTime. And so every once in a while, we'll be on FaceTime, and I'll hear uh, our son, Brandon, or our daughter-in-law, Taylor, I'll, I'll hear them say, Addie, who is that? And boy, what a wonderful thing to see these little, this little lips, Nana or Papa. She recognizes. If Addie were able to put some thoughts into words, she might say something like, well, they've claimed to be Papa. They've claimed to be Nana. And so I'm going to go with that. I believe that. Addie, who is that? She believes who we claim to be. Friends, I want you to know it's a simple question. Who do you say that I am? But friends, I'm going to say it again. The answer has profound implications. What has Jesus claimed? What has Jesus claimed about himself? 
He's asking them, who do you say that I am? And I want you to know, he even gives a hint at the answer. Listen to this. Who do you say that I am? Be standing before the Pharisees at one point, he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. Here in just a week after this episode, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to be standing before the high priest, and the high priest is going to directly ask Jesus the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered by saying, I am. He asked the question, who do you say that I am? And friends, it's also simple in the fact that he gets it down to you and I. You and I. Who do you say that I am? And please know, someday it will be down between you and him. God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the judge of the world, and he has given evidence of that by raising him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 17. Who do you say that I am? You know, it's hard to try to claim to be someone you're not. Now, hang on to that. It's, it's really difficult to try to be someone you're not. To claim to be one thing when you're really not that person. Frank Abagnale, we all know that's the movie Catch Me If You Can that Leonardo DiCaprio starred in. It was about a a movie about a a real life man, Frank Abagnale, who spent half of his life being someone who he wasn't constantly on the run, constantly being caught. My wife and I got married on June 1st, 1984. And I... uh, we, we together, we had decided where we were going to honeymoon, and we were going to honeymoon in Orlando, Florida, Disney World. Epcot was less than, or about a year and a half old at that point in June of 1984, and so Epcot, this brand new thing, we're going to go see Epcot. We get to Disney World, and we go to Epcot on that first day. We're walking around Epcot, and I start asking around, okay, what's the place to eat? And, and I start hearing about, you got to go to Italy because there's a restaurant there at the Italian, at the Italy uh, uh, junction. And, and boy, you got to eat there. So we make our way there. I, I walk in and the place is completely packed with people. As a matter of fact, I can remember the hallway walking up to where you gave your name was lined with people. I get up there. My wife's with me. And she said, what reservation is your name, or what name is your reservation under? I said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, we don't have a reservation. And she said, oh, folks have made reservations three to six months out. There's absolutely no way I can get you in. And, uh, oh, what what a bummer. We're standing there, and and she says, you're on your honeymoon, aren't you? And and I said, we are, and I'm not for sure what, uh, what prompted her, maybe... We were holding hands and laughing at everything she said. May have given, been the dead giveaway, but I said, yeah, we're on our honeymoon. And she said, I'll tell you what, here's what I'm going to do. She said, I've, I've called the name of a party of two about 15 minutes ago. About 10 minutes ago, I called it again. They haven't shown up. I'm supposed to call each name three times. And so she said, go and sit down 
And whenever you hear me call this party of two, you pause for a minute. If no one stands up, then you get up and you walk here and I'll give you that reservation. I said, that's that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I said, what what name is it? And she said, Andropov Stalinishki. And I, I said, excuse me? And she said, Andropov Stalinishki. And I remember Lana saying, this is so embarrassing. And I, I, I said, oh, okay. So we go and sit down. As we sit down, my wife says to me, there's not a soul in this room that's going to think you're Andropov Stalinishki. And so sure enough, a few minutes passed, and the maitre d', maitre d'am says, Andropov Stalinishki, party of two. And we paused and we got up. And as we walked up there, I can assure you, no one in that room thought I was Andropov Stalinishki. We got a table, but we did not enjoy the meal one bit because my wife kept being concerned that some six foot five, 275 guy named Andropov Stalinishki is going to walk in grab me, twirl me above his head, and throw me out of the restaurant. Friends, it's hard to claim to be someone that you're not. So what did Jesus claim about himself? He said, I am the water that springs up to eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, in order to honor God, you have to honor me. Friends, he allowed Jewish people who had a strong conviction that there is only one God, he allowed them to worship him. Friends, those were the direct claims that Jesus made about himself. And after 2,000 years of a world scrutinizing every word, every action that he's ever done, it is extremely hard to claim to be someone you're not. It's a simple question. Who do you say that I am? And I end with this. It's a relevant question. Alistair McGrath is an Oxford professor of religion, and he said it is incumbent upon each succeeding generation to not wrestle with the question, what did he do, but to wrestle with the question, who is he? Because, friends, it makes all the difference in the world. It was a relevant question then. It is a relevant question now. And I want to take you to one more Greek word that Jesus uses here. When Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Listen, that word say there in the Greek, it's the verb L-E-G-O or lego. And originally that verb lego meant to lay down to sleep. That's original. Then later, it it came to start meaning to put an argument to rest. 
It's kind of like whenever we say a phrase like this, we say we need to put this issue to bed, which means we need to bring it to closure. This is an issue that needs to be settled. That's the word that Jesus used with them. Who do you say I am? He's saying to the disciples, it will change everything, your answer. It changes everything. We've got to nail this down. It had to be nailed down then. It has to be nailed down now. Who do you say that I am? And here's the last thing. I skipped over a phrase right there at the beginning of verse 27. It says, he took them to Caesarea Philippi. I've had the chance now to go to Caesarea Philippi. And I want you to know the reason there is because Caesarea Philippi at that point was the center of Baal worship. It was the center of Greek mythology. On the side of a huge rock uh, cliff, there had been built a white marble temple to Caesar. For many Jews, they believed that that area was the mouth of the Jordan River, which was bringing back huge memories to them of Jewish history. And so Jewish history, Roman supremacy, Greek mythology, ancient pagan religions, all were centered right there. And it was against that backdrop that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And in this world in which we live, all the religions, all the varying thoughts, all the philosophies, the question comes down to against that backdrop, who do you say that I am? And I want you to know, Christianity is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Christianity is not a set of ideas. It's not a a set of philosophies. It's a person. That's why Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And if he is who he says he is, then please hear this. If he is who he says he is, then I am who he says I am. If he is who he says he is, then I am who he says I am. If I'm lost, if I have rejected Jesus Christ, then I am under the wrath of God. That's what Jesus says. But if I've put my faith in him, then I am who he says I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who he says I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. That is a Hillsong worship song and I love it. I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Friend, this morning, who are you and who do you say that he is? We're praying that if someone right now does not know 
where they would spend eternity, you've never answered that question, we're inviting you right now. Please respond. Someone will answer the phone. Someone will respond to you. However you can reach out. It may be that there's a believer that you know and you want to call them right now. And you want to say to them, I need to bring closure to this. I need to settle the issue. Who do you say that I am? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that right now, hearts are turning to you. And Lord, I pray for believers who are watching right now. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage and conviction to stem, to stand against the tide of popular opinion and say, Lord, I believe. And I will stand steadfast on the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, in the midst of so much uncertainty right now that we're dealing with in our world, so much uncertainty about our health, so much uncertainty about life, so much uncertainty about the economy. Lord, our businesses, our homes, our families. Lord, in the midst of all the uncertainty, we need this bedrock truth. You are the Christ. And so, Lord, thank you that you can save. Thank you that someone today can be forgiven of their sins. Lord, we pray that in the holy and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.